Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian, and hope that everybody is having a great Memorial Day weekend. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Wall Street had an up market after the worst sustained downturn since 1923. China's COVID lockdowns continue as the National Business Aviation Association's European Business Jets show was held in Geneva. This as Russia's war on Ukraine enters its third month and Europe is increasingly divided over negotiating with Vladimir Putin. Worried about rising commodities prices, France and Germany are negotiating with Putin to open Odessa. The Russian leader wants sanctions lifted on Russian fertilizer in exchange for allowing Ukraine to export its grain. But Ukrainians fear it's a ruse to demine Odessa's waters and allow Russia to invade the city. And the Biden administration approved the sale of CH-47 heavy lift helicopters to Egypt as other U.S. allies and partners grow frustrated with the slow pace of Washington's arms sales approvals. Before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage, Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report, and Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall, and General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. And check out our two weekly podcasts, Cavus Ships, hosted by our contributing editor, Chris Cavus, and our producer, Chris Cervello, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters, and the downlink with our contributing editor, Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful weekly look at all things space. Everybody, thanks so very much for joining us. It's great to be here, Vago. Thanks. Yeah, it's always a pleasure, Vago. Thank you so much. Happy Memorial Day weekend, Vago. Great to be here. Uh, indeed. Uh, uh, happy uh, weekend uh, to you all. Thanks very much, especially for making time on this holiday weekend uh, for us. Uh, Ron, uh, start us off. Uh, interesting week. Um, how did the group perform? Yeah, it was a, it was a good week on the market. Um, the S&P was up about six and a half percent. The the defense stocks broadly were in line with that. Boeing did a little better than that. Boeing was up about nine and a half percent. To give you a feel for the names with a little more beta, uh, a little more market sensitivity, uh, Archer Aviation, they're one of the EV tall companies. They were up almost 20% this week. So you saw some of the names that are, are more sensitive to the market really, really move this week. Uh, and then if you look at where uh, energy prices ended the week, uh, they, they didn't move a heck of a lot, but you're kind of, you know, call it 115 ballpark uh, for, for WTI crude. Uh, and then the, uh, the tenure uh, ended the week around 2.7%. Um, so you, you've seen it pull back a little bit from, from 3%. Um, but broadly, you know, it was a, it was a good week for the market. Uh, and uh, I see your dog is also having a great, uh, a great weekend there. Uh, did uh, Boeing uh, benefit from a successful Starliner landing? I mean, is that what helped uh, investors you know, regain a little bit of confidence in the stock? Um, I, I don't actually think so. No. Um, because it, you know, financially it's really not all that material and, um, you know, Boeing's just, you know, of a, you know, classification of stocks now that are just more higher beta, um, and the higher beta names perform better when the market's doing better. So, you know, I would attribute, you know, Boeing's performance this week to just being a higher beta name. Um, and- in, you know, interestingly enough, Vago, I mean, it's, if you look at the, the stocks that we follow, it's traded more in sympathy with the the SPAC names, you know, the small cap names that came public in the last year or so uh, than it does with the uh, larger cap names. And a lot of that just has to do with its, its higher beta and, and high retail ownership. 
why are we having you know sort of a, a sudden shift in the market? I mean, is it is because the underlying fundamentals are no different, right? I mean, what were sort of the bigger drivers for folks to get a little bit more bullish here, or did they did they think that there's been enough of a blood blooding, um, you know, reordering sheets and and getting ready for the long term? I mean, what what do you what are your economists sort of telling you, right? I mean, you, you yeah, and I'm. Um, you know, not having you speak for the bank because you watch the sector, but I mean, sort of what's the thinking in terms of the broader market dynamics here? Yeah, I, I think honestly, nobody really knows. Um, you know, there's um, something called a dead cat bounce. I mean, it could be something like that. Um, if you also look at um, kind of the market psychology right now, everybody's pretty negative. Um, generally, that can be a, a reasonable time to buy. Uh, and also we were going into a long holiday weekend, right? So generally speaking, uh, folks that are short things tend to cover into a long holiday weekend. So having the market, you know, outperform into, into a long weekend is, isn't really all that surprising and having a bit of a relief rally after, um, so many weeks of just sort of, sort of down, it isn't, isn't all that surprising. Um, so, so we'll see, uh, I think you're right. I mean, nothing really changed, uh, fundamentally, uh, other than the fact that, that I think maybe the market just got. Uh, tired of um, of all the selling, uh, so we'll we'll see if there's follow through. <laughs> you know, truly, I mean, you know, you know, I don't mean to like oversimplify it, but honestly, if anybody tells you that they know why the market did a little better this week, then um, they don't know. Yeah, no, that uh, that's exactly right. Right, I mean, it's the market is people and people behave in all sorts of reasons uh, and irrationality or rationality can be, can be part of the mindset and the mix as well. Um, Sash, sort of give us your sense from a European perspective. What were investors telling you over the past week uh, and how did the group in Europe perform? The group in, in Europe perform, performed pretty well in generally up markets. I mean, I, I would I would say there's been a degree of bottom fishing. Stocks that have underperformed badly over the last, you know, one month, three months, six months or so uh, have, have just got a little bit of interest. There is there's all, there, there are, there's always a balance or there's always a mix of optimists and, and pessimists in markets. It's when that mix and when that balance changes that you get these big moves up or down. And um, uh, you know, it's always interesting to see people come in and bottom fish and whether it was bottom fishing uh, for Boeing this week or uh, you know, some of the underperforming or relatively underperforming uh, defense names like Babcock and so forth. You know, that, that's, the, that, that's a feature of, frankly, a, a well-functioning market. What we're worried about, actually, is there's not very much liquidity in European markets. There's not that much liquidity, frankly, in equity markets compared to what we would have expected, let's say, a decade ago. A decade ago, equity markets were so deep and liquid that they gave a very, very good, very, I'm I'm trying to avoid using the word accurate, but certainly a very good feel for um, how a broad swathe of investors actually looked at the uh, you know at, at the ec- uh, economics you know of, of the week of the month and now actually takes very few buys buys or sells to start skewing the market and individual stocks significantly one way or another and um, so I think that's why we have much bigger days when stocks in our sector move five percent a five percent move for an aerospace and defense stock is nothing nowadays um, you I you know I think I used to say, oh, three, you know, wake me up at 3%. But now I'd say, wake me up at 5% because anything much less than that is, you know, is, is almost a, a move in the bid off a spread. Um, but, the, you know, this is a mark of a decreasing amount of liquidity overall. Um, Richard, uh, your, your sense on where we stand on the air travel uh, update, right? I mean, Chinese lockdowns uh, are continuing. There was a sense that they would get uh, eased 
uh, a bit. Um, we've been obviously looking at the Chinese market and what it means sort of more more broadly for 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 travel, even though you have a, a, a bullish rebound um, uh, you know sense uh, that that we're going to be back to normal next year. Kind of walk us through you know what sort of the major commercial aviation storylines were of the of the week. Well, heavily dominated by China, um, you know, even though we're still you know, bullish pretty much on the rest of the world, China remains a major problem with an intriguing twist this week. Uh, over the course of the week, it became very clear that there were voices of dissent with China. And of course, you know, President Xi has not been at all good about tolerating uh, dissent. But Premier Li has a fair amount of power, at least ostensibly. He should. It's supposed to be, you know, he's supposed to be uh, second in command and, and to have a fair voice. And lately, indeed, over the past few days, he's been raising his voice saying, this is really bad. This is having an impact on our economy. This strategy might not be working. Uh, and indeed, you look at the air traffic numbers, they're practically as bad as they were in the worst of things in 2020. All the ground gained by China has effectively been given back. And you know, as a result, we look at our, again, our optimistic uh, outlook, you know, optimistic except for China. And we had uh, in our last forecast an 11% impairment in 2025 relative to where we would have been. It is now 17% uh, as of our latest forecast. And that is purely due to China, um, nothing more. So the big question is, to what extent do the voices coming out of Premier Li indicate actual dissent, actual dissatisfaction? And can those voices, can that faction within the government actually leverage their position to affect change. And we have no idea. It's back to criminology, of course, where there's you know, no free media, social media is cracked down upon, but all of a sudden within the government itself, you have this fascinating twist. Ron, Sash, any, any comment on China, uh, Chinese market, some of these dissenting views and how they're being reflected by uh, investors? Oh, I'll, I'll jump in here if I may. I mean, you know, just, dissent is a high risk strategy for anybody in China at senior political level um, and the fact that it, I, you know the fact that it's being reported that may tell us something about the uh, the you know the, the depth of support for this dissenting view it may also tell us that the individual is about to be um, you know quite significantly de-emphasized uh, politically but yeah you know this is um, th there's a that it's very interesting that uh, even senior Chinese members of the Politburo come to the conclusion that we've you know, collectively come to some time ago, which is there's a limit to the number of cities of 20 to 25 million people that you can put into complete lockdown without having a material effect on the economy. And the, you know, if the Chinese party stands for anything, it is economic growth. Once you take away the economic growth, you're having an effect on the, the, the legitimacy of the party. I think it's absolutely fascinating. Um, I'd just like to actually add a, a point about European air travel, because European air travel is at the moment, bifurcating a bit, and I'm really talking about you know, intra-Europe, into the, the haves and the have-nots. The haves are the airlines that were frankly savvy and kept very high rates of employment during the first 18 months of, uh, of uh, the pandemic. Um, they tended to furlough individuals rather than sacking them. Um, and therefore, they have got staffing structures that are pretty intact. The have-nots are those who uh, made very, very heavy uh, redundancies and now cannot recruit again. And I would say among the have-nots, 
um, Heathrow Airport. Heathrow Airport is a shambles at the moment. Um, IAG Group, and particularly British Airways, but also EasyJet, which are finding it hard to re-recruit, and hence are cancelling flights. They're typically cancelling somewhere between uh, 20 and 100 flights a day. And that is having a big knock-on, both to their schedules, naturally, but also to their reputations, uh, because they're starting to lead large numbers of their um, uh, putative passengers in, in, in the lurch. And I wonder whether we will start to see quite significant changes of, in as much as anybody has brand loyalty for sure at all, but changes to, to, to brand loyalty in, in the European market because of the airlines that are managing the, the recovery poorly. Um, and you know, IAG and, and EasyJet really are standing out in that regard at the moment. Ron, thoughts? Yeah, I mean, really on, on the China front, you know, the, the biggest concern becomes, um, you know, kind of just following up on Richard's comments, you know, it is an important market for aircraft, particularly single aisle aircraft. They have a lot of Maxes parked on the ground and Boeing has a lot of Maxes in inventory that are destined for China. So it's, you know, it's hard to, how can I say, it's important for China to kind of get back on, back on the rails to get that narrow body end market back to where it was before COVID happened. You know, you were at uh, eBase in Geneva uh, last week, uh, talk to us a little bit about the travel experience, uh, right? I mean, we're, we're still, uh, for a lot of people coming out of it and haven't uh, gotten into the full swing of international travel, even though I think at this point, just about all of us have been uh, getting back to some sense of normal uh, travel. Uh, what was the travel experience like and what were the key uh, takeaways? And, and then uh, uh, Sash uh, and Richard would like your uh, takes as well, because I think um, uh, Richard last week uh, said that Bombardier might have something with new, um, you know, same thing with new cup holders. We can get to that in a, in a minute, but sort of give us a sense on the travel experience uh, and then uh, eBase uh, takeaways. Uh, and uh, eBase obviously um, hosted every year by the National Business Aviation Association, as I mentioned. Take it away. Yeah. So eBase, um, you know, is hosted every year in Geneva. It's the largest business jet show outside of the U.S., um, NBAA is the biggest one, and this is, um, I would call it, you know, NBAA's little sister in Europe, but it's actually a significant show, meaningful show. Uh, all the OEMs were there and, and you know, suppliers and the usual suspects. I would say it was a little different than previous years um, because there was no Russian contingent. It, it tends to be a, a nice forum uh, for the folks in, in, in Russia that use private aviation to, you know, look at private aviation and do whatever. But uh, uh, but the show was very well attended, um, and yeah, there was some some broad trends that came up in many of our conversations with with the industry players. One was worries about the supply chain. Um, no big surprise there, but pretty much what we heard from everybody was, from from an OE perspective, we're all in pretty good shape for about a year, and then we really do start to worry about the supply chain. And and in the supply chain, again, across all the conversations we had. It was worries about, you know, tier three, maybe tier four suppliers, the smaller suppliers. And it was also worries about castings and forgings and electronics that go into engines. It seemed to be there. There was a lot of worry about um, the engine supply chain and, and so on and so forth. Across the industry, everybody seems to be sold out through at least 2024. Um, the industry book to build is about two and a half and, and everybody's participating in it. Um, a couple of interesting things we picked up at the show that I actually I find fascinating um, you know, the most profitable business jet manufacturer is, um, if you want them to do it by profit margin, is, uh, is Gulfstream. But number two is Pilatus. Uh, huh. uh, and I thought that that's fascinating. You know, Pilatus is actually doing quite well. 
Um, when you look at intentions to buy, um, there's a survey that was done, you know, intentions to buy the PC-12 and the PC-24 are right up there with uh, some of the other aircraft you might expect. So they're, they're, they're doing quite well. Um, so, so overall, it, you know, it was, it was an interesting show, um, from, you know, from, from that perspective, I don't think there were many other surprises and, and maybe I just kind of start the Bombardier thing. They did announce the global 8,000 and the global 8,000 does seem to be just, a, uh, an update to the 7,500, um, and the 7,500 is a derivative of the original global. So the global 8,000 is, um, a derivative of a derivative of an airplane. Um, so I don't know. I mean, that is, that is what it is. Uh, Bombardier claimed that they, the airplane went supersonic in a test. Um, the aerospace engineer in me thinks, wow, I don't know if I'd want to claim that on an airplane that's not designed to go supersonic. Um, because that means you probably lost control of it or you were in a dive or something weird happened, but be that as it may, there you have it. The company does march to its own messaging beat. Uh, maybe it might be one way of putting it. Uh, Richard, uh, give us give us your sense on uh, eBay's takeaways. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I would put both of Ron's observations spot on together. One was uh, Bombardier tweaking the 7500 uh, very gently, a very gentle tweak. Uh, and the other being absence of Russians. And let's back up a little. Why did Bombardier need to announce this? Why will everybody else be announcing it? Well, you know, <laughs> about a for a decade, the last decade, this ultra high-end Luxo barge, $75 million in today's money business jet market was occupied squarely by Gulfstream with the 650 series. That was an incredible money earner for them. They have that position now. They're bifurcating price points with the 700 and 800, uh, which are elaborations of the 650. Now you've got the 7,500 joining about three years ago. Um, and of course, about a year, year and a half ago, Deso announced the Falcon 10X also right there in that 75 to $80 million price point. That's that's um, that's sporty. You know, we don't know how much of the market really needs a jet at this point. I mean, is it enough for the hundred or so planes a year that you would think would be necessary to support three producers? Oh, and by the way, yes, per Ron's comments, that high end Russian market would appear to be absent for some time, possibly forever. We don't know. How much of that high-end market was Russian? Well, you know, it's not showing up right now because, you know, the business jet market is extremely strong. People are waiting in line for a business jet. But if there's any kind of downturn, say due to a recession, we're going to miss those Russians because, of course, you know, they were closely linked to energy prices. And I'm not saying we shouldn't have sanctions. Of course we should. And, of course, the oligarchs should be fully sanctioned. But for that very high-end market, I, I expect that they were above 5%, maybe even 10% of total demand. And given the precarious economics of having three programs, well, that's uh, that makes it that much worse. Now, on top of that, you know, everyone needs to do what they need to do to run to stay in place. Because of course, you know, with three players, everyone's going to be tweaking at all times to make their product more competitive and make that price point they occupy more, well, appealing to get their share. So expect to see a lot more announcements like this one, you know, at, at future eBases and NBAAs and whatever else. Sasha, anything you want to add to that? Just, just one point on the uh, Global 8000. Um, I noticed in the press release uh, for the aircraft that Bombardier says that existing owners of the Global 7500 can upgrade to the 8000, you know, at, a, well, at what? by the standards of this segment of the industry as a nominal cost. Um, 
i.e. that this is, a, this is essentially a certification and um, software change. This is not a, there's very, very little that is new build, very little that is um, actually manufactured in, in this upgrade, which I think tells us that, um, you know, the, it's an, probably an increase in the, in the uh, maximum takeoff weight, uh, possibly an increase in the, in the amount of fuel it's carrying, but I mean, very little else differentiated. And I think, therefore, the competition between particularly the Global 8000 and the new uh, Dassault Falcon 10, I, where Falcon 10 is quite clearly a clean sheet uh, design, I don't think Dassault is going to be losing a lot of sleep over this at the moment. Sash, sort of pull on where we are uh, with the Russians. Uh, uh, Emmanuel Macron and Olaf Scholz uh, spent about 80 minutes uh, on the phone with Vladimir Putin looking uh, to find a negotiated settlement. Uh, there are governments in Europe that have been pushing the Ukrainians to try to settle uh, under the guise of humanitarian uh, relief and ending the fighting. Um, this has been a very polarizing uh, issue in Europe. I think Boris Johnson deserves a lot of credit and I think speaks uh, for a lot of countries in Europe, particularly in the east of the alliance, who are very, very skeptical. I mean, they think that this is uh, not Putin trying to address global famine or anything else but use this as a guise, as an excuse uh, to, uh, to take a pause and, you know, under the, under the notion of opening Odessa, getting Ukrainian grain out there is actually to demine the harbor and to be able to, to redouble uh, efforts to, uh, to crush a, a city that um, would otherwise be much harder for him, him to take. Uh, what is the impact of all of this? And does it change any prognosis, right? I mean, does it suggest sort of weariness that Europeans don't want to bear a price, will use global suffering as an excuse to try to pressure Ukraine to settle this, less to do with right and more to do with, hey, look, the sooner we get back to normal, uh, the better off this will be. And if you're a German chancellor who committed $100 billion to defense, you might not need to spend that money if things uh, get reset with Russia. Where are we? Am I being too cynical? Uh, where, where are we and what does all of this mean? Uh, look, I don't think you've been too cynical, but I think it's quite important not to refer to Europeans because I think uh, in your, your opening comments, you, you were much more accurate, which is I think that there are fractures that are emerging among different European countries. And um, those fractures are becoming more significant uh, in, in the last week. France and Germany on one side, but probably also, you know, Italy and Greece uh, in uh, with that. Uh, if you look at public opinion polls in Greece, you know, 60-65% uh, of Greeks polled are um, effectively supporting Russia. You know, they, they, they are certainly not in favour of supporting the Ukrainians in, in, in this war. Um, there were some extremely unhelpful comments from uh, former Italian Prime Minister Silvio Berlusconi um, this week, um, actually, as there were from, uh, you know, Henry Kissinger. Uh, some of the older statesmen are, are not helping uh, in, in this regard at the moment. On the other hand, um, countries that tend to be to the north and east of Europe, um, Poland uh, quite clearly, um, uh, but also the Baltic states and the um, uh, Scandinavian countries, I think that are far more, uh, I mean, they, clearly they're concerned by these fractures and they are taking much harder lines. Um, personally, I find it very hard to see how talking to Vladimir Putin can do anything other than give him heart when it's being done at a, a you know, a Schultz-Macron level. Um, so I think it's, it's a pretty, un, uh, uh, it's a pretty 
poor way uh, to do things. The commentary being written by Ukrainians in you know European newspapers over the weekend, they are clearly concerned that support from Europe is beginning to uh, is beginning to fracture, and the flow of arms and supplies and so forth from some European countries is nowhere near as fast as it should be. Uh, and that's a problem because you know if we if we come back to what's happening in the war at the moment, which is Ukraine's not had a good week. The the Russians have been attacking over territory where they have had all of the advantages of uh, logistics maneuver, um, which is the Eastern Donbass. They have been gaining ground. Um, uh, you know they are making it very very hard for the Ukrainians to defend the town of uh, Severodonetsk, and the Ukraine will almost certainly have. Uh, started to withdraw from that by the time we go to, uh, uh, you know, we, uh, we we go on the air. And you know, this is a very, very tough bit of the war. But the most interesting comment I heard about actually, the you know, why the Russians are starting to do better, admittedly from an incredibly low pace this week, was um, from a you know, retired general who said, you've got to understand, you know, what Russians are good at, it's an artillery army with some armour. It's not a combined arms army. It's not an armoured army. It's an artillery army with, with armour, some armour. Mm-hmm. And it's the artillery that's been winning this week. And that's, that's very uncomfortable for Ukraine. And for you know, those of us in Europe who uh, strongly support Ukraine's uh, territorial integrity and right to exist. Agree uh, in your uh, assessment. Uh, and basically, you know, P- Putin is convinced uh, that he can outlast uh, whatever sanctions have come his his way, and now that we have him on the ropes and he's on the verge of default, uh, I think you you know don't, don't give him an out and keep punishing him uh, because we're seeing increasing dissent uh, even in Russia uh, as a consequence of this. Right? I mean, so you know he is the terminator. He either has to lose uh, or we lose, and if we lose, then that's a green light to you know every other despot. Uh, to, to pull a pull a trick like this and uh, and get away with it, Ron. Is there any change in terms of um, you know your estimates uh, on um, sort of U.S. support for this as well? Right. I mean, on the Friday show, uh, Dov Zakheim, Doctor Dov Zakheim, former Pentagon comptroller, uh, noted that he's uh, really disturbed the number of Republican members who are uh, opposing. Uh, uh, pro-Ukraine efforts, um, you know, under the guise of, you know, fiscal responsibility, that presumably would also go to defense spending ultimately, right? I mean, these guys are making the case that uh, we shouldn't be giving this aid and, and you know, that national debt is a big issue and we have to be addressing it, uh, even though there was this sense that there's going to be a lot more money uh, that's going to go uh, to the Pentagon, perhaps $100 billion more. Are you are you adjusting any of your projections on what the U.S. defense budget outlook uh, will 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 be? And and Richard, want to get your sense on this as well because I know even though you're aviation focused, you are also looking at these top line trends, political and otherwise. Go ahead, Ron. Yeah, no, we're not. Um, I mean, because we, we didn't build, um, for example, like a hundred billion in. Um, you know, our our assumptions in in our our model were. There would be some upside to uh, uh, what the administration asked for, um, and, um, and and we're not. So we haven't changed that at this time, right? And and ultimately, it seems like it's too early. In, in the end, when we'll see when it's when it's all baked in, what it is. But um, we've built some upside into our forecast, but not you know the the whole ball of wax, if you will. So yeah, so no no changes. And in fact, I'm reasonably confident our forecast will end up being conservative. But we'll 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 see how it goes. 
Richard? Yeah, you know, I, I agree completely with the view that this is exactly the moment to press uh, the situation because while I am focused on aviation, I can tell you as that's a, a really great leading indicator of the impact of sanctions. And by all accounts, it's getting really hard to fly in Russia. And within a couple months, even cannibalization options to keep existing fleets flying are going to start to run out. In other words, Russia is quickly going to become a full no-fly zone. The impact, whether psychological or economic, on the population is going to be enormous. Um, you know, imagine just being told, no, you cannot fly. <laughs> and goods cannot fly. It's going to be hard to fly cargo. Everything falls apart because they have exactly zero capability with their own uh, aircraft. So everything is dependent upon Western spares and they've been completely cut off. That to me says that, you know, we should give this another couple of months because the potential fallout from this is going to be, well, a game changer, I think. Uh, again, right. Um, he has to lose and Ukraine has to win. Um, that's, that's, it's pretty much the binary choice. There is no win-win. Um, and as long as the Ukrainians want to keep fighting to uh, liberate their territory that was annexed and invaded, uh, that's a decision for Ukrainians uh, ultimately right. uh, to make. Do you, do you change your budget forecast at all, Richard, in terms of where we're going to go financially? I completely share <laughs> Dr. Zachheim's cons uh, concerns because What's extraordinary about the 50-something Republicans who've come out in favor of effectively, well, not supporting the Ukraine, is that they're suddenly making up a, a whole host of concerns that aren't defense-related, that are, you know, they're, they're mentioning baby milk formula and things, all of them concerned about baby milk formula, and not at all pro-defense. So this is a real sea change, the arrival of 50-something folks effectively doing Putin's bidding, uh, who could impact the upward trajectory of defense is it enough to change our forecast no but i think all of us agree oh my goodness watch this space um sash um you know boris johnson uh has for whatever troubles he's had uh at home been uh, a leader on this issue among the first to say that the russians were going to invade ukraine uh, very early and sort of sending uh, aid to uh, ukraine and and being a very very forceful spokesman finding his inner churchill as somebody who's always admired and, and is indeed a churchill biographer um but there was yet another element of uh, you know, breaking lockdown, the Gray Report uh, came out, you know, allegations that the administration may have um, suppressed them from, you know, I mean, is Boris Johnson going or is he staying? Because it seems like no matter what happens, there's a lot of, um, you know, a lot of news stories um, suggesting he may be going the way of the dodo. And I think short of shooting somebody while he's on closed circuit TV, he's likely to keep his job. I mean, how stable is the government? Is he likely to be going anywhere? Yuck. Um, look, the government internally is very unstable because the government isn't doing a huge amount of governing the country at the moment. Um, Johnson has you know, rightly identified that he can achieve quite a lot uh, in terms of his foreign policy and in terms of uh, support of Ukraine. And that is generally pretty popular in uh, in the UK, but to some extent, you have to see it as being a distraction from um, his own personal poor behaviour. Always has been, always will be, uh, I suspect. And the, the you know the uh, various inquiries into parties. It sounds unbelievably trite, 
uh, or petty. It is to an extent, but it's uh, it's you know indicative of generally poor poor behaviour, uh, which does not play well with with electors. The problem for the Conservatives, but also the, the good thing for the Conservatives, players you run, is they can't think of anybody who is more electable, A, and B, um, with Keir Starmer as the leader of the opposition, the leader of the Labour Party, who is a an extremely upright, very intelligent, highly decent person, but not terribly interesting. He's not the person most of us would want to go out to the pub with. And as such, he's just not very electable at the moment. Um, as long as that's the case, Boris is probably OK, um, but it's not very edifying. Um, speaking of pubs, uh, is you know there uh, there is uh, there are news reports that uh, the UK will return to imperial measure of ounces, uh, gallons, pints. Uh, bright pints were exempted from an EU standpoint, um, and uh, going back to miles. Uh, even though you guys have a hybrid miles kilometers, and you know probably no, no. having a greater facility to convert. Uh, than anybody, uh, any any nation I know. Uh, did, does this mean anything meaningful? Let me put it that way, uh, Sash. Uh, uh, engineering trade-wise, or or is this just, you know, a thing to do uh, for Her Majesty's Jubilee? It's a thing to do for the Jubilee. It is a political distraction. It's a little bit of red meat for uh, the, the 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 right of centre. But I, you know, um, the pint. You've only ever been able to buy beer in pints. Long may that continue. Uh, certainly uh, on draft, all of, all of the roads. I, I, I wouldn't even say it's a hybrid miles, kilometres thing. Uh, very few people and, uh, you know, think in terms of kilometres in the UK. All of the signposts are in miles. But yeah, you know, this is a, this is a, a headline to distract. Uh, very, very good. Um, and Sash, I know uh, you've got to go uh, for an important family uh, engagement, but you have a, a point uh, that you wanted to add uh, about the war. You remember we talked nearly a month ago about the uh, the U.S. Uh, supplying Ukraine with 96 M777 155-millimeter towed guns uh, and nearly 200,000 rounds of uh, ammunition. And you know we talked about how actually that amount of ammunition does not last very long. On the other hand, the 96 M777s, that starts to be quite a significant proportion of the U.S., uh, installed base, which from memory is about 700, maybe 800 guns. Um, and there was a very interesting press release out by Rheinmetall, the uh, German uh, defense company this week, that may provide an indicator of why it is the US is providing M777s, which are a, a perfectly modern towed howitzer. Um, in fact, the most modern pure towed howitzer. And Rheinmetall are supplying uh, two very lightweight uh, prototype 155 millimeter cannon. Uh, to the um, Department of Defense for testing. And it seems that there is a new uh, US program out there for uh, artillery, whether, I, and it's not clear yet whether these are towed or, um, or in some way, uh, you know, carried on trucks or, or track vehicles or so forth, but 155 millimeter artillery with way over the range of either the M109 Paladin or the uh, M777. So something significantly in excess of uh, 39 kilometers. There you go. I'm, I, I can think metric as well, um, which is the, the standard range of 155. Rheinmetall has been testing 155 millimeter conventional guns with ranges of 80 to 100 kilometers. They fire them quite regularly out in one of their test ranges in South Africa. And I get the feeling this is what the DOD is starting to look, look at, in which case there may well, well be a much bigger 
generation change of uh, artillery than people have been expecting. Watch this space. Let me let me ask uh, very briefly on rocket artillery. Um, it looks like Washington is getting close to uh, making the decision to shift uh, to to give uh, MLRS a multiple launch rocket system uh, to uh, Ukraine. How game changing is that capability, especially if our allies and partners follow suit? It's very game changing for a couple of reasons. One range, much greater range than uh, 155. As I said, 155 millimeter artillery, maximum range 39 kilometers practical range in uh, 25 to 30 kilometers. Um, MLRS, we're talking about uh, 80, probably 80 kilometers, so practically 50 to 50 to 70. Um, that just goes much deeper uh, into the Russian uh, uh, in, into the Russian lines. And because it's guided, um, because almost all GM, uh, MLRS rounds are now guided rounds, it retains its accuracy at range. The problem historically with almost any indirect fire uh, weapon, whether it's a gun or a rocket, is you get spread. So it gets less accurate the further you fire it. GMLRS completely uh, does away with that, and it's as accurate at 70Ks as, as it is at, uh, at 10. So this starts to become a really serious counter-battery uh, weapon again, um, and undermines the advantage I talked about earlier, which is the big Russian advantage in artillery, particularly in the eastern Donbass. If enough of those... Uh, um, either HIMARS or conventional MLRS uh, systems are delivered and enough rocket pods, then I think that's as, as much of a game changer for the current attritional and really very, very tough uh, phase of the war as the supply of javelins and NLO was at the beginning of the war. Sash, thanks so very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Have a great uh, day, uh, a great week, and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so much. Thanks so much, Vargan. Well, a pleasure as always. Cheers. Richard, uh, just want to uh, shift to you. Uh, Biden administration approved the sale of CH-47 uh, heavy lift helicopters to Egypt. Uh, this is coming as U.S. allies and partners have been frustrated at the slow pace of Washington's arms sales uh, approvals. What does this deal mean and what does this deal mean for Boeing, uh, which has been, uh, you know, this, this constitutes a very, very good export product for the company? Yeah, you know, this uh, this sale comes uh right after the German order for 60 CH-47. So I, I think uh, the debate, the concern about the U.S. Army purchasing Block 2F models um, is probably overtaken by events because the supply chain and the production line have been secured by these orders. Um, it's important to note that Boeing at this point, commercial, sorry, on defense side, is kind of bifurcated between the new programs that are losing money and the old programs that are really quite profitable. And this is definitely one of the older ones, the older platforms like the F-15, the Apache, the F-A-18, and, and of course, CH-47. This is really good news because basically they need this to well, effectively subsidize the money-losing part of defense, particularly KC-46, T-7, and uh, Air Force One, God knows what else. And uh, on the commercial side, about which uh, the less said the better these days, so it's definitely a very solid bit of news for, for Boeing. Ron, um, any, any thoughts on that and, uh, and the 47 and it's, a, you know, continuing attractiveness and, and fundamentally, you know, uh, Richard's model that the company is actually doing really well on its heritage products and not the new ones. That's clear, right? I mean, if you, if you look across the portfolio of, of heritage products, at least in defense, um, they seem to be you know, doing better there for sure. Um, and uh, a presumably profitable foreign military sale. Uh, like Richard highlighted, uh, is some you know welcome news at a time where um, there's been been a lot of headwinds. 
Um, give us give us your sense on a uh, national reconnaissance office uh, contract that could prove needle moving. Yeah, so the the national reconnaissance office uh, announced the electro optical commercial layer. Um, it's set up to support over five hundred thousand federal users with commercial uh, Earth imagery. Uh, the award was the largest of its type for commercial imagery. Um, Maxar, uh, Planet Labs, and Black Sky were given awards. Um, Maxar's award was a little over $3 billion. Uh, Black Sky's award was a little over a billion. Planet did not disclose their, disclose their award, but my guess is it's probably a little over a billion, maybe a billion and a half. Um, so in total, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty big deal. Uh, it continues work that Maxar was doing uh, for NRO uh, roughly at the same level they were doing it before, um, but it opens up that world to both you know Planet and Black Sky. Uh, and what's notable about both those producers, in particular Planet, Planet is an Earth energy provider that uses um, a, uh, a constellations of small CubeSats. Um, their Dove satellites are about the size of a piece of, of a piece. A piece would be amazing of a loaf of Wonder Bread, um, even that in and of itself is pretty remarkable. Uh, and they're gonna put up another um, constellation of Pelican satellites, which are about the size of a kegerator, small, you know, dormitory refrigerator. Um, so we're seeing um, uh, some remarkable things going on in the earth imagery world uh, with regard to more technology being packed into smaller uh, form factor satellites. So, uh, but that's a biggie and it goes out about five years. and. Um, those stocks all reacted to that this week. Thanks very much for uh, joining us. As always, hope you guys uh, have a great day. Great uh, Memorial Day uh, tomorrow and have a great week and looking forward to having you guys back on again next week. Thanks a lot. As always, Vago, pleasure. Thanks. Great to be here, Vago. Thanks and have a great rest of your uh, Memorial Day weekend. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report and check us out on LinkedIn and stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship and we'll see you again tomorrow.